The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. Hello, everyone. Coming to you. Hello. Actual in person. Isn't that great? Isn't it nice to see people again? We are coming to you live from the Toby Family Auditorium at the Commonwealth Club of California for the Michelle Miao Show. I'm John Zipper. I'm the club's vice president of media and editorial. And to all of you here in the room with us, as well as everyone watching and listening online, thank you for joining us for this, for this program. We're very pleased to have you here. And thanks to our partners in making this program possible. This program is presented in partnership with Open House... and GLBTQ Plus Asian Pacific Alliance. And of course, we have to give a shout out to, and I have to say the name carefully, What the Cluck Thai Chicken and Rice for the delicious lunch. That's right. Now, the woman who needs no introduction, but is going to get it anyway, she's the producer and host of the Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. So bringing you our panel, Michelle Miao. Thank you so much for being here with us, and thank you, John, who is usually my co-host and the vice president of media here, uh, really incredible co-host and the smartest person I know. Thanks so much for joining us for Qtapi Pride, actually, I should say that. I'm very, very, very proud to say that uh, Michael Quinn of GAPA, he and a team of organizers have led us for the first ever Qtapi Pride in the entire country, as I believe. And so they did Qtapi Pride Week. And just to give you a little bit of history of how we got here to this event, um, we wanted to be able to specifically give a platform for our queer, trans, AAPI leaders and elders to share their stories, especially during this challenging time. So let me introduce to you our panel today. We have Gil Mangawang, who was born in San Francisco uh, on March 22nd, 1947. He is the fourth of seven generations in his family to be born in the United States. Through more than four decades, he has been active in the fight for social justice and equality in the United States and the Philippines. His memoirs also include his coming out story as a Filipino-American gay man. We have Jasmine Jubilee G, who has has volunteered at film festivals, music venues, and street fairs, has also worked as an advocate and activist for LGBTQ organizations, served in leadership positions in and on the GAPA Advisory Board and Transmarch, is a musician, a clarinetist, by the way, and a singer in three choral groups, and also contributing author of Trans Assessors, Volume 1, and as an elder alongside with Felicia Elizondo, Felicia, I should say, Felicia Flames, 
and Tamara Ching. We also have Crystal Jang sitting right next to me who loves being considered a Q-tappy aunt. Auntie, I should say. <laughs> Crystal is a third-generation San Franciscan and fourth-generation Chinese-American. Having discovered she was attracted to girls at the age of 13, Crystal has spent the last six decades dedicating, dedicated to pushing the boundaries of API queer visibility and activism. As a Kitapi elder, Crystal, Crystal's current focus is on fostering intergenerational relationships to sustain and strengthen the Kitapi community. She is a co-founder of Oasis, which stands for Older Sisters in Solidarity, API Cutesy, which stands for Asian Pacific Islander Queer Women and Trans Community, and the Red Envelope Giving Circle. Crystal is happiest when she is causing good trouble. <laughs> um, we have Randy Kikukawa, who has been active in the LGBTQ community for more than 40 years and is currently music director of the GLBTQ Plus Asian Pacific Alliance, or GAPA, the men's, uh, Gay Men's Chorus, and managing director of the Golden Gate Men's Chorus. Both choruses are members of the Gay and Lesbian Association of Choruses, the Gala Choruses. And Kitty Sway, who's with us on Zoom, who is a writer and an activist, a multi-hyphenate lesbian elder. Her groundbreaking book, Words of a Woman Who Breathes Fire, is the first book by a Chinese-American lesbian. Her second book, Breathless Erotica, won the Firecracker Alternative Book Award. She has been included in more than 80 anthologies worldwide. Her work has been translated into German, Japanese, and Italian. In 2018, her alma mater, San Francisco State University, inducted her into the Alumni Hall of Fame. The Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center commissioned her as one of 12 API queer poets to be honored for a poem and video for the digital exhibition, A Day in the Life of Queer Pacific American, of Queer Asian Pacific American. She is the subject of Nice Chinese Don't, Kitty Sway, directed by award-winning filmmaker Jennifer Abad. And speaking of that film, we have a trailer in which we'll play, which I believe sets the perfect tone for our conversation today. So let's see the trailer of Kitty Sway's documentary. Nice Chinese girls don't sing, swear, or shout out loud. Nice Chinese girls talk with their eyes averted, sit with legs crossed, and laugh with hand in front of mouth. Nice Chinese girls don't drink, smoke, or talk too loud. Nice Chinese girls sip their tea slow, use umbrellas in the sun, wear skirts and perm their hair. Nice Chinese girls don't get divorced or become dykes. I was born a nice Chinese girl. Good thing it was a phase I soon outgrew. So it's tradition here that we share a coming out story, and Gil kicked us off by mentioning that he has included his coming out story in many of his uh, memoirs. And so, Gil, will you do the honors? Share with us a coming out story. All right. Well, this goes back to a time when we were having family reunions. Um, My mother's family is from Fresno. And so my siblings and I always rotated who would take mom home from the reunion back to the Bay Area. It was my turn. 
So during the family reunions, everybody's asking, when are you going to get married? You know, uh, you know, you, we always want to know uh, you're an attractive guy. And I would always say to them, well, I just haven't met the right person. They didn't know that at that time I was already had come out and was already in a relationship. My mom didn't know. I was on I-5 with my mother. We're speeding down. I'm driving about, what, 75 miles an hour. And so she asked me, Gil, when are you going to get married? And so I said to her, Mom, I think you're just going to have to depend on having grandchildren from Lisa, my sister. And she says, what are you saying? And I had nothing more for me to say but listen to her say the words. Are, 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 are you? She was having a hard time. Are you gay? And I said, yes. Mm-hmm. And the sound that she made was an utterance that was similar to when my father's casket was closed. I knew she wasn't going to do anything. She wasn't going to jump out the car. She wasn't going to hit me. She just had to sit there and take it in. But the end of that story is that she has welcomed Juan as being my sole partner. Uh, My father died, of course, before he knew that I was gay. Um, And my mother has always, up until the time she died, asked if Juan wasn't with me, when he came to visit me, she would say, why didn't you bring Juan? So uh, I've been totally welcomed by my family since that point, you know. Awesome. Crystal. Well, first of all, thank you for including (laughs) me, and thank you to everybody who's worked so hard to elevate the voices of GLBTQ plus people. Um, My coming out was many phases, but the earliest coming out I can remember was when I was 13. I was a middle school student at Francisco Middle School and um, fell in love with um, an older woman, an eighth grader, who was one of the most popular (laughs) kids in the school. So I couldn't figure out what my feelings were, but somehow it took me to the to the card stacks. So for those of you who are old enough to remember card stacks in the library, and we're looking through the card stacks to see if the word gay existed. There was no such word as lesbian, but I found a study that said that gay same sex attraction was on a continuum. So I read that study. And I, went, and I wrote a long letter to uh, this beautiful eighth grader and telling her that I think I might be gay, I'm in love with you, and I cited the study in my letter saying, it's okay, though, because it's on a continuum, zero to ten, and I'm somewhere in that continuum. And as a seventh grader, trying to figure out, you know, if this was correct or not, she was very kind to me. Um, she didn't laugh at me, but she did tell all her friends mm-hmm. and show them the letter the next day. And they all came up to me in school and said, are you a homosexual? Mm-hmm. And I said, I guess I must be, but it's okay because it's on this continuum <laughs> and it's okay from zero to 10. And that was it for, that was my first uh, foray into coming out. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Jasmine. 
I knew I felt something different growing up as a boy in abandoned houses. There had been girls' clothes. In fact, one afternoon with a girl, she didn't say anything. She just watched me try on a few pieces of clothes, but uh, I heard a car honk. That meant my mom was having all the kids to load up in the station wagon to my father's restaurant. So I quickly undressed. Then I had a inkling for fine items, silk, even <laughs> even if it's cotton. So, but somehow I didn't really understand because I had grew up in a traditional Chinese home, uh, attended a ultra conservative church. I just uh, couldn't shake it all through my years, uh, high school, then college. I saw a article in a adult magazine about Christine Jorgensen having her sex her sex change in Denmark. So, and I thought maybe I save some money and go there, <clears throat> but it didn't happen because I I also was told that I was crazy or sick. It took me many years. I was at least 50, when I, when internet was available to people. So either at work or at the library, I researched the word gay and uh, transsexuals and cross-dressers, and I found that uh, I'm okay and not crazy or sick, like I've been told all my life. I joined several groups, a supportive group at City of Refuge before they moved to Oakland. Also, Transgender SF and API, now SF Community Health Center. And so, little by little, I, but it took me six years before I, after going through group and individual therapy till I was able to get a doctor prescribe hormones. So, but my journey took many years and detours because uh, they say third time is the charm. I went to two other surgeons, but it didn't turn out because finally the third one I was able to have my bottom surgery two and a half years ago, February 19, 2019. So it's a long journey. So thank you, Jasmine. And Randy. So it's interesting that Crystal's story is very similar to mine because um, when I was a little boy, my mom gave me all of her college textbooks. And so I've read all of these books, and she had abnormal psychology. And in the section on deviance, 
it had a section on homosexuality. And it said, oh, 5%, 4% of all men were homosexuals. And of course, I was not good at statistics, so I thought to myself, well, only one-third of 1% of Americans are Japanese Americans. So the chances, odds that I'd be Japanese are only like one-twentieth the odds that I'd be gay. So obviously, since I'm Japanese American, it's much more likely that I would be gay. <laughs> so, so in seventh grade, we had an assignment in English class to write an autobiography, just an essay. And in my essay, I wrote how I discovered that I was a homosexual and you know, all of this stuff, and I turned this in. And of course, I think my parents got called in <laughs> and they talked about it. But that's basically my first coming out because I actually just wrote this long, I think it was like a 10-page paper about all the different things that made me realize that I was homosexual and that, you know, and all the research I had done said, yes, this obviously is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, over the years, as Crystal also said, you know, it's a process. You come out to your friends, you come out to your family. But that's the very earliest that I actually told somebody. And I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. So I didn't feel any guilt about it. And I didn't feel hesitant about it. I just sort of like told people, you know, like, hey, look, 4%, I'm one of them. <laughs> I'm one of the special people. <laughs> we're really special. I think we have superpowers and we're incredible people. And finally, Kitty. Hi. Um, first, I want to say thank you to Michelle for including me in this uh, wonderful program. And um, my, and I want to say hello to everyone in the pan- on the panel and everyone out there. I unfortunately do not, for some reason, I do not have a screen to see all of you. But anyway, uh, my coming out story is... Um, I left home when I was 17. I ran away. It wasn't because I was a lesbian yet. Um, but so, but when I did tell them, it was, um, it, it was really painful because they, they, they rejected me. But I came out to my grandmother, who I believe was a lesbian. Um, she was a very famous Chinese opera singer. Uh, she in San Francisco in the 1920s through the 1940s. And I did a lot of research and I found out that she was in a relationship with another Chinese opera singer and they were together for 10 years. But anyway, uh, my story about coming out to my mother is that I had been invited to do a poetry reading at San Francisco State University Um, there were four of us and I invited my parents and my grandmother. So of course I had to tell my mother before she sat in an auditorium full of people and I talk about or read poems about being a lesbian. And, uh, there was this big Chinese banquet and I took it into the bar where, where there was not too many people. And I, you know, I came out to her. And uh, as I said, it was pretty hard. Um, but, you know, I, I just want to say, and, and I'm sure most of you, you know, well, I don't know if you feel this way. But for me, coming out to family is also coming out to community. And for me, I had many coming outs. You know, I was a nice Chinese girl who suddenly appeared uh undressed on the cover of On Our Backs, a lesbian sex magazine. 
So that was, you know, that was another coming out. Then I came out into leather. That was another coming out. So coming out uh, on our backs, you know, half naked and coming out into leather, um, I think caused a lot, caused a lot of criticism um, against me, whatever the word is, um, from my community, which is the Chinese American community and the Asian Pacific Islander lesbian community. So that, you know, also uh, hurt a lot. And, uh, you know, there's uh, my writing was called Too Revealing. And, um, you know, you can you can put, you know, to anything, being too different, being too much of a rebel, uh, being too butch. Um, so that's all, you know, coming out for me. a great segue to the second question, which is, let, yeah, let's talk about the challenges we face as queer trans AAPI individuals. Um, and, you know, you, you can't choose one or the other. We're both. And so let's talk about some of the things that we have experienced as Asian American LGBTQ folks. We'll begin with Gil. Well, I want to, again, um, express my thanks to Michelle. Uh, for inviting me to participate on this panel. Um, I'm honored that you would um, choose to have me represent a segment of my community, our community. Um, I guess I've experienced a, a lot of subtle racism, uh, anti-Asian attitudes. When I was in the Air Force during the Vietnam War, um, I didn't go to field of duty but I was stationed in Nashville, Tennessee. And I would go into bars with my posse, I would call them one Mexican, uh, a black guy, uh, a white Southerner, and me. And we always made the pact. If we didn't get served in 10 minutes, wherever we went, to a bar, cafe, restaurant, whatever, we would get up and leave. Well, one time, the four of us went to this one bar. And, uh, you know, at that time, I was conflicted about my sexuality. I had come out already to myself at my first male encounter uh, in the Air Force. Um, but I was still uh, mimicking, masquerading as being straight. So at the same time, I was also interested in women and at this particular bar where we were, while well, I was making a pass at a woman. Well, I was the last of the four of us to leave. When I uh, left, uh, you know, they beat me up, basically. Uh, so that was back then. But just even more recently, uh, I have moved here to Los Angeles, uh, where I'm zooming in from. I've been here since 1988. And I thought I was done with all that kind of anti-Asian hate. But just last week, or a few weeks ago, I was at the Vaughn's grocery store. And typical thing you're doing when you're social distancing, you wait for the other customer in front of you. Well, there was this man with his child who was, you know, children are children. Uh, but this particular child had no sense of accountability. The father was doing nothing, whatever. The child had dropped something, and then the line moved forward. And I said, you know, that'd be nice if you could pick that up. Well, the guy turns around and says, don't tell my child what to do. Man, I tell you, I was so angry. And then it really, it really pissed me off because he did this particular attitude. Oh, no. oh. 
I tell you, I was ready to fight. I was ready to fight. So it's still there and it's proliferating so much more because of the political atmosphere that we know we have all had to endure during this last particular period. So that is unfortunately my experiences. I don't, those, that's like the beginning and the end. There's so many more stories like that in between. But I just wanted to bookend, you know, it's there. It truly is there against us. Speaking of uh, discrimination at bars, I know I wish that I was able to pull up the, the photo, but I remember vi- vividly a photo shared actually uh, with signs in front of a, a, a bar. I think it's in the Castro and Randy are there and there are signs holding up because of anti-Asian discrimination and hate. And so let's hear from you. Yes, that was in front of the Castro station that was taken in 1980. And it wasn't just a spontaneous sort of thing that we did. Um, there was an organization called GAIN, the Gay, Information, Gay Asian Information Network, which was founded by some friends of mine in the South Bay. And um, it was a group of white guys and Asian guys and some black guys. And they were doing research in the bars because there was a lot of rampant discrimination in terms of admission to bars. And it was not documented. It was only hearsay. So what we did is we would go to specific bars where we heard this was happening, and they would be asking people for five picture IDs, which, of course, nobody carries. And um, they'd only ask it if it was um, non-white people. So we'd send in a group of, like, two or three white guys to see if they got checked, send in two or three Asian guys, two or three black guys, um, and then mixed groups, two white guys, one Asian guy, two Asian guys, one you know, white guy. And we jotted down all the information of how often, and it was obvious that people were being discriminated against based on their race. Um, and so I was at a party, and my friend said, you know, we really have all this information, but we don't have anybody who's willing to speak up and come forward. And I looked at him, and I said, well, Why is that? I mean, like, I can do this. And he says, you sure? And I said, of course I can. And I didn't realize that all the other people he approached had said, oh, no, my family will find out or whatever. I was already out to my family, and I just said, fine, organize it. And there was a specific instance where I was kept out of the bar on Castro Street. So I said, okay, we'll do this one. And we organized. We got all the media. We got all of the photographers in the city. There were... um, television crews and radio crews, and um, basically we picketed a bar specifically for discrimination. And it was not picking out one bar, it was picking out all the bars, because we had gone to the Harvey Milk Club, the Alice B. Toklas Club, the um, Tavern Guild especially, and all of them said, no, 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 don't bring this up. We're fighting enough discrimination against um, gays and lesbians in the community, um, and it'll make it look bad if you're saying that they are being discriminatory as well. And I said, well, you know what? I'm not putting up for this. You know, why, should I, why should I have to put up with that? And we did that protest. It was very successful. It was um, in all the media, everywhere the next day. And there was a lot of backlash. But by the following year, there were no instances of people being kept out of bars and being carded for multiple IDs, whether they were black or Hispanic or Asian. And so I think that was a, it was something that needed to be done. And um, I think it put the bars on notice that we're not, we're not going to put up for this. You know, we're not going to shut up and stay out. 
The bar manager actually debated me outside the bar during the protest on radio and said, um, well, you know what? Your, your people don't drink, and that's, we're not going to make any money. Hmm. And, of course, my friends all know I drink. <laughs> um, and then he says, oh, and this is a cruise bar, and you know, if, if, we, if the bar filled up with Asian people, nobody would come here because nobody wants to cruise you guys. And I just, I just, I, I had a big fit with him on that time. I can't tell you what I said. <laughs> tell us what you said. <laughs> it's, um, the radio interview was actually put online in the archives, so it's actually online. I found it recently, so it's interesting. But um, no, uh, I think I've, uh, I grew up in, I was born and raised in the Midwest, but I grew up in Hawaii, and so I grew up in an Asian American culture. So I never felt like I was a minority. I felt like I was in the majority group. And I think that's carried with me wherever I've gone. I don't feel like I have to be quiet. I don't feel like I have to give up any of my rights just because, you know, I'm a minority person. Um, so ever since that point, I think my, all of my friends sort of turned to me as the person who's like, speak up for the gay community, the Asian American communities, you know. Um, more recently, I've been more in music, but when I was younger, I was a big activist. I was the co-chair of the um, UC Berkeley um, Lesbian Gay Union. I was also president in, as an undergraduate of the Gay Association. Um, and so I don't think, I think it had to do with the fact that I didn't think there was anything wrong with being gay, so I didn't feel like I had to be quiet about it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really care who knew about it. Um, I'm the only person in my entire graduating class from college that put Gay Students Association in the yearbook. I was surprised because none of the other members of the organization did that. And a lot of people came up to me later and said, wow, you put that in, that's going to be forever. And I said, well, it is forever. I'm not going to change. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Oh, yeah. Crystal. I can't even mention, you know, obviously I talked about what it means to be a Chinese girl, Chinese queer. Um, curious for you to share your own experiences of what that might mean to you. I think Kitty and I shared a lot of the same experiences as we were doing activists. We were young activists, and certainly uh, when we were coming out or being very visible, um, I think like you, I came out so early that it didn't make a difference whether or not people knew that I was queer or not. But it did, it, it did impact the family um, relationships because I had three brothers, and uh, they all had children. And in family conversations, you know, we would go to banquets, and people would say, when are you going to get married? Or, you know, as you say, you know, when are you going to have children? You know, uh, my aunties would say, my dresses are getting too old. Until you get married, you know, you have to, you know, so those are the things that we had to deal with. And it was until I came out as a lesbian, until I had a child, was when I was on equal par with, uh, with my, uh, the other members of my family. But coming out in the lesbian community as a queer Asian was very, very difficult because there were very few of us around, as Kitty would uh, attest. Um, we would be sort of an anomaly and we were eroticized. We were, um, we were asked to things like, uh, what do you order in a Chinese restaurant? Or, I mean, my partner said, uh, she is also Asian, uh, but she said that when she, went out, when she went out to 
uh, restaurants with uh, a bunch of white folks, they would ask her to ask the waiter for a fork at the Chinese restaurant, and she would turn around and say in English, would you please bring them a fork? I mean, it's like, I, because, I mean, they would think that because we were Asian, we had this sort of tendency to just be Asian. But like you, we, we, uh, the women's community suffered a lot of discrimination for people of color asking for three or four IDs. Um, and we would do the same sort of, um, sort of informal uh, survey where we would send our white friends in. They would get in immediately. Then we would come to the door, and we were asked for three or four IDs. But then I started to do where I would go in and out and in and out to see what they would <laughs> recognize. And they would still ask me for three or four IDs every time I went out. Wow. So we sort of did this sort of test like you, and then uh, eventually had to have community meetings where we would have people and we would confront the bars, things like that. But the, the worst part was I really felt like an other in, in a queer bar as well. And it was my Asianness, so it was you know, part of the racism. It was hard to separate whether or not the discrimination was because of race, gender, sexual orientation, or now age as we grow older. Mm. And I can go into a bar and, you know, people won't serve you or they don't, they don't consider you drinkers. So they don't, you know, uh, treat you as well as anybody else does. But there's a lot of, it's hard to separate out those strands of who we are and how we're discriminated against. The only time it was called a slant eye bitch was in the gay white bar. Mm. <laughs> And that was in Palm Springs. I'll never forget it. And we were just sitting there. And somebody just walked by and just said, what's that slant-eyed bitch doing here? I mean, that was really a heavy-duty um, awakening because I thought it was safe in my, with my own people, my own queer people. That just broke my heart. Um, Kitty, follow up to that. Nice Chinese girls don't. Well, I have a lot of the same experiences as Crystal because, uh, yes, I was a young dyke and she was also a young dyke. Now we're old dykes. <laughs> um, I, I want to just um, piggyback off of uh, one of the things you said, um, and it is that uh, that part of that subtle racism is that we all look alike. You know, Kitty looks like Canyon. Canyon looks like Willis. Yes. Okay, so we all look alike. And my, they don't know how to pronounce our names. Okay, for years, I was saying my name is Kitty Sway. They said, huh, 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 So I made it easy. Kitty Sway, like sway back and forth. I thought, if, if you can pronounce Navratilova, if you can pronounce Schwarzenegger, you can pronounce Sway. So that's my take on it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, just a reminder, we are taking questions. There's a mic back there. And if you're joining us online live, you can send those questions in the chat box and John Zippero will get them to us. And um, please, if you're asking a question, ask to a a speaker, a specific speaker, and we'll, we're going to actually leave Kitty out of the that portion. Um, Jasmine, to be Asian, AAPI, and trans, the challenges. I was sheltered because I lived in a straight world, married. I had 
two, I have two daughters, they're adults. And so I didn't really experience all that, discri- only racial discrimination with even among other Asians. <coughs> uh, but yet, when I finally came out and became my own personal um, person, then I uh, started getting different types of discrimination. Family-wise, for now, my two younger sisters, I'm the eldest, they're more open uh, the last four or five years because we celebrate Chinese New Year's or our birthdays and have lunch together. It took them a while, but they finally was on board to accept me as I am and not refer me by my old name. Whereas my three brothers and their family was still not quite there. I'm not worried about them anymore. I used to worry about how to get them to uh, accept me. But I I said, it's it's a lost cause. If they come around, they come around. My two daughters as adults, in between, partly because of their mom, my ex-wife. But uh, lately, my younger daughter's a little more open because she is in home business while taking care of her son, almost two years old, because uh, she got me to buy some products, especially beauty products, uh, <laughs> hygiene uh, items. So I have renewed a connection with the younger daughter. But then the older daughter, somehow going through her own situation, having lost her husband because he had a heart defect and passed. So she's, I'll, I'll wait and let her come around again. So it I hadn't experienced all the experience as the other folks during childhood, young adult, adult. But um, and even I'm grateful to Michael because in May we had the first Asian uh, cute tapi event in the Castro because they're anti also trans. They wouldn't allow us to fly the trans flag even for one day. They did maybe one time for Transgender Day of Remembrance. So, and a lot of clubs are anti-Asian and Mm anti-trans. So it taking some time because the dikes are more open because when we transport chapter event at Dolores Park, we share expensive because we build a stage for, uh, because they would use it on Saturday. We use it on Friday. So we share the cost and pour the parties. And so there was a mutual 
collaboration when prior to that they were anti-trans. So it it's coming around. Hopefully more gay men would be more open. Supposedly LGBTQ working together to get like government funding and other considerations, but we're still splintered. Hopefully we'll be more connected in the near future. Hello, everybody. I am Miss Billy Cooper, uh, a 62-year-old unapologetically black transgendered woman. Can you hear me? Woo! Oh, yes. Um, thank you. Thank you, everyone on the panel. But, you know, the I just want to, my question is, I feel as though we're so apologetic to all these racist and racist people and all these, all the segregation that, the, the, the segregation that happens towards us and the systemic racism and the hatred and the, the lack of diversity. And somebody um, uh, said a couple years ago, um, we're not celebrated, we're only tolerated. So I just want to pose a question to the panel. From, um, from where people talked about the 7th and 8th, 7th, 7th grade and 8th grade, and Jasmine, where you talked about you were sheltered from, um, uh, from the community um, when, well, you were sheltered from a whole lot of stuff when you were married and everything. And the other parts, the other um, uh, panel uh, members, what, if any, I mean, you know, I always say, I'm sick and tired of holding hands singing Kumbaya. I'm sick of that. I'm so sick of that. So coming from an Asian perspective, do you, do you, are you really happy with, with literally no movement of change in all these years in your life? Because I'm 62 and I'm black. And I haven't seen a whole lot of change at all. And so every time we take one step, we get pulled back three steps. So I'm just asking the panel, are you happy? Tell the truth. Come out and tell the truth. Let's stop being apologetic to all our distractors and our haters and people that, that have been holding us down for years and years and years. Because I, I don't live in the Castro but I have a right to be in the Castro. You know, I, I mean, I don't live in, in Pacific Heights, but I have a right to be in Pacific Heights and community. And I was just in Palm Springs, California, and it is still racist as ever in Palm Springs, California. So, you know, uh, everyone that can hear my voice, you know, focus up and take a look at yourself on the inside. And, you know, I'm not asking you to love me, but I'm asking you to to respect me and to respect my Asian counterparts and to respect everybody because, you know, we people like that who are prejudiced and and a systemic racism, they hold that close to their hearts. So, you know. I hope they come around. I know I probably won't see it in my lifetime, 
But, you know, there has to be a change. A change has to come. Thank you, Miss Billy. Uh, Gil, I'm going to start with you to if you would like to respond to Miss Billy's question. You want to know the truth? Of course, I'm not happy with the circumstances. Excuse me. I have to turn this my alarm off. I'm not happy with the situation. Truth be told, I've been a fighter all my life. And it has not just been for Asians. It has been for blacks. It's been for African-Americans. It's been for all the oppressed people in this country. And it's those who are always marginalized, the poor and the people of color, those that don't have the resources. We're the ones who always get hit on. Uh, No, I don't tolerate and I don't feel good about what's going on. But the point is, in in the communities that we are part of, this is where we can make the most effective change. And unless we take that responsibility to heart, and unless we begin to work not with only the generation of cohort who is speaking now, our responsibility is to mentor the generations behind us because those are the leaders. Those are the ones who are going to rise up to take reins just as we did. We have been able to come this far because of the grounds that have been made by people who've come before us. And so that's what the challenge is. It's not to be content. It's not to accept. It's to recognize that the power has to be taken. And I'm not saying by force. There's many different ways. And in my own experiences, I've used multiple experiences to gain power, leverage politically and financially. And you have to use all those mechanisms. You know, you have to fight to to survive. And and that's essentially what I'm saying is, no, I am not satisfied. The fight will continue long after I'm gone. And unless there's a true acceptance of genuine racial and social justice in this country for all people, it doesn't matter what their social economic status is. It doesn't matter what their ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what the religious institution is, their philosophy in life. It's all about equality, compassion, and equal treatment for people. Mm, Thank you. And absolutely, I would say probably for all of us, we are not happy. And the reason we're here today is that we are not happy, and we will continue fighting. We've been battling for generations, prior generations and future generations. And I really believe that we have to be a multi-generational, intergenerational movement. We cannot, we have to tell our stories, whether you're young, old, you know, whether you're trans, whether you're anybody, you need to tell your stories and we need to elevate each other, not just fight for a single piece of the pie. We need the whole damn pie, the whole damn pie. Mm -hmm. And I want to thank Michelle because she's giving us the opportunity to elevate our voices and we need to elevate each other's voices. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much, Crystal. Um, anyone else want to add to that? Want to add to Miss Billy's uh, question? Well, because I was told that I was sick, and so I didn't go any further. I didn't do any research. To I was much older. 
to realize that I'm not sick or, or crazy, that I was a unique and special person. It took me practically most of my life to get there. That's the shelter. Shelter from the truth. Mm -hmm. So I was happy when I realized that I am who I am, but unhappy that it's still going on. So I joined the fight even though late, and I still will fight even though I'm retired from many activities like, uh, such as work. So, so just to say for myself, I'm happy that I made some progress, but not happy when my sisters and brothers are still struggling wherever they are, not just the Asian community, but all all the people of color and suppressed people. So we need to fight on. Absolutely. Can I say something? Yeah, if you wouldn't mind heading to the microphone, please, and ask your question. We we have 10 minutes. We started 10 minutes late, and so this is okay. So um, I, I have two questions. I'm Jay from Open House. Um, and my, my first question is, and this is totally not mandatory. You can say pass. <laughs> my first question is, what was your first experience of love when you found love from anybody else? How was that? You can give a moment, an incident, a gesture, whatever. And the second is, what gives you hope? Given all that was the, in the first question that was said, I do want to ask you, when you look around and when you see what has happened since you started, what gives you hope? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Who would like to answer that and begin first? Randy? Well, she asked two questions, so... Um... First love was when I was in college, and I fell in love with this guy. He fell in love with me, and everything was perfect. And then, of course, you're young, so you, eventually you break up because you don't <laughs> stay together. But that was when it first happened. Um, but to go back to the other question, and with the idea of hope, my, I think I've, I always hear um, there's, we, have, we still have work to do. There's so much more to fight for. When I was coming out, I had no hope that we would ever have marriage equality. I had no hope that we would have employment equality. I think that legally, we've made such huge gains, and it's societally that the gains are a little less pronounced. But I think right now, the work is not as huge as we think it is, because at least from my point of view, racists will always be racist. They're unapologetic. I'm not trying to win their hearts. I'm not trying to change their minds. I'm writing them off. I will not have anything to do with those people. Uh, I want to try to exclude them from society the way that they've excluded us. And we have built up enough allies in the, in the community on, of people of color and white people and um, of all genders and all of all um, backgrounds. And I think that if we can maintain ties with those allies, we can overcome the people who are unapologetic racists who are never going to change. And we can simply say, you are now excluded from society because we are being included. And um, I really have no tolerance anymore, even if it's a family member, for, race, uh, for anti-gay feelings. 
um, or racist feelings or anything. I just say, I'm sorry, but if you're not going to change, you're no longer a part of my society. You're no longer a part of my life. And, um, and that, for me, makes the fight more worthwhile because that means that I've attained what we are trying to get to and that one day we can attain equality within our new community of our allies and ourselves. The question of love and hope. Who else would like to add to that? Crystal. Well, love comes in so many different forms, but I think one of the purest times that I felt love was when I came out to my best friend at the time, Diane, and when I was a teenager, and I told her that I was, I was so afraid to tell anybody, but I told her I was queer, and she just wrapped her arms around me and just said, I love you no matter what. (laughs) And that was a pure form of love for me. And that gave me the hope that I could live the life as my authentic self. And that was the sort of the beginning of my activism as well. Mm. I got friends to tell today. And she's a lesbian. Oh. <laughs> yes, yeah. we're friends. Yeah, We've been friends for 60 too. years. Yeah, she's a lesbian. I love that. Anyone else want to answer on love and hope before we end the program? Love. Kitty? Can you? Yeah. Um, I had this experience where I went to PEGS, which some of you may remember and went to. It's a gay lesbian bar. Um, It was Halloween, and my best friend called me and said, let's go to PEGS. And I said, oh, no, it's a school night, you know, first years in college. She said, come on, it's Halloween. So we went to PEGS, and uh, it was great. And this couple walked in, this Asian couple. And we snickered and said, boy, are they in the wrong bar? (laughs) And then the uh, man came over and asked me to dance. And I realized he was a woman. And that was my first relationship. Um, Hope. I have a lot of hope. Like Gil, I've been a fighter all my life. Whether I was um, from the marches and student strike at San Francisco State to the I Hotel um, and uh, anti-Vietnam War, right? Gil is shaking his head. Some of you others are shaking your head. Um, so, and I march now. I still march now. I still speak at protests, and the hope is. I see all these young, young, young activists. And I am so hardened because now they march. They are taking up the banner. We may have had conversations for decades, and it's time for us to move from conversation to movement. And if we still have to march, speak out, write, make music, make food, we'll do it. So that's my hope. Um, Michelle, can can I say one thing about the violence against women? uh, Violence? Yes, we'll we'll end with your last comments. Well, this is not really uh, good for any. (laughs) No, maybe we need to hear it. That's why we're here. Okay. Rage is an emotion I felt since childhood, even before I knew the word in English or Chinese. Since childhood, Bullied, shamed, stoned, 
voice and taunts, name called, a child growing up in a white world. Chink, gook, slant eye, Chinaman, speak English. This is white man's land. Your daddy cook in Chinese restaurant. Your daddy laundryman. I didn't know it then, but I saw red. So I had many battles uh, as a child. Uh, you know, little Chinese girl growing up in a white world. In Vancouver, uh, at gay games, I was assaulted as a queer. At the BART station, just a few months ago, my partner and I were catching a bar train. We walked past a middle-aged man, well-dressed. We walked past him and he said, it's fucking Chinese. Um, thank you. Well, <laughs> maybe that wasn't good to end on. But... Well, F him. Um, I think that's the first, uh, first time I've ever said that on a program and live. I want to thank all of you for being here today and all of you online who've joined us for this special program, uh, Happy Cute Happy Pride. I want you to remember the speakers who are presented today. Please thank every single one of them. And let me say their names once again. Gil Mangoang. Thank you. Jasmine Jubilee hey, G. Jasmine. Crystal Jang. Hey, Crystal. Randy Kikukawa. Hey, Randy. And Kitty Sway. Kitty. Yeah, Kitty Sway. <laughs> I want to thank our partners. Thank you so much for making today happen. Open House and GLBTQ Asian Pacific Alliance. Of course... Thank you to What the Cluck for the tr- uh, this very, very delicious lunch. And last but not least, thank you to the Commonwealth Club of California yeah. for providing the platform for us to have this conversation. If you'd like to hear more programs like this, head to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Everyone, be safe. Take care of one another. We'll end the program in memory of Janice Murakitani. We just lost this big giant here in San Francisco. And also in memory of Felicia Flames Elizondo and Ken Jones, who's special you know, folks in our LGBTQ plus community. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle.